gavel this to order? Sure. Boom. Amanda Duncan, thank you so much for joining joining me today. I wanted to first start off by apologizing for taking so damn long to reach back out and set this up. I've, you, I w- I'm very grateful you reached out. I think it was like a month and a half ago or two months ago. I was like, I want to talk to people. And you were like, okay. And then I just ghosted like five other people. You weren't, you weren't alone. And it was not a purposeful ghosting. It just... It happened. So I apologize, but we're here. And, uh... It's good. Uh, It's completely fine. Honestly, you know, uh, the last few months have been insane. Um, I mean, the the last couple weeks have gotten a bit of a break um, from teaching, but don't even worry about ghosting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, anyway, I feel bad when I... It's like he offered to take somebody out to dinner, and then they're like, cool, you want to go on Thursday? And then I just don't respond for a month and a half. Like, that's that's just it it's it's bad so i'm trying to <laughs> trying to rectify it um well let uh, amanda i'm curious like we can talk about whatever we want to you wherever we go today I, I have no agenda um but i do sort of want to set up for folks who don't know you or me maybe um i i know about you i think we met first at cal state uh csu long beach is that right yes um under the uh, i believe it was under the auspices of tom hassenflug that um we saw your th- your your quartet with Yumi, right? Am I am I remembering correctly? Yes, yeah, that was right. We played Bixa for you guys. Yeah, so that was uh, I want to say 2008, maybe 2007, probably 2008. 13 years ago, Amanda yeah. Duncan. I oh god, I know. Um yeah, but we had the University Percussion Quartet at Cal State and Yumi Tamashiro was in that. Yeah. Um Yes, and I know we both we both know Yumi. I know you know her very well. Yeah. Um, and Danielle Collins was also in that group. Yep. And I, I think the other person for that masterclass was Risa Barrios. Because um, yeah, he ended up being a new person in the quartet, Jeremy Cooley. But that was the original lineup when you came to us on Bixa. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm curious. Um, now that we're you're a 13 year older version of Amanda Duncan, like what? <laughs> I, you know, maybe this is too broad of a question, but like, what? You also do a lot of stuff in the steel band world, which is another sort of tangent where you and I overlap. Um, but I think I've not done anything with steel pan stuff with you. Oddly, it's mostly been Tom Hassenflug. Um, but you know, you're you're on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast, so it makes sense that we haven't crossed paths. But um, what what would you say now, looking back over the last 13 years, um, is some things that you look back and you're like, I was right about that, and boy, was I totally off base about that. Like, what are some things you've, you've you sort of self-diagnosed over the last decade and change? <laughs> uh, well, as for things that I got right, one of which is uh, pan, that... Mm-hmm. Around the time, actually a little bit before you came to work with our quartet, um, a little before that was when I had, you know, by the pan jumpy. I had, I had played from when I started at Cal State um, in 2004, but I didn't truly fall in love with the instrument, like with a passion until about 2008. So, so that was the beginning of when I really began um, my just my, my real journey with pan. Um, and that's been one constant ever since is like, I've no matter what musical setting I've found myself, whether, you know, as a performer to teach 
structure. Like, can has always been a consistent um, part of it. So that so that's one thing I got right. Um, well, thinking be- that I might keep going with this pan thing. Well, before you get into um, the things, before you get into the things get- that you did wrong, um, let me let's stay on the thing you did right. Who was it? Michael Carney, Doctor Michael Carney, that introduced you to the pan scene. Is that right? Yes, the late Doctor Michael Carney. He is the one person who is responsible for, I would say, my uh, career-wise, most of what I do now. Like he taught me everything um, that I, uh, most of, most of what I know about Pan um, and his program really was incredibly influential. Um, and of course, like, you know, he, the way he ran the program at Cal State Long Beach was very comprehensive. You know, all of us had to competency and well, more than that, but we really all had to be good at orchestration, drum set, percussion, steel, pan, you know, arranging multiple percussion, kind of all the things that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but well, his passion was pan. So that be- I think that became my passion. What was it? Per- what is it about steel pan in particular that you feel like over the last 13 years has kept you sort of engaged in like what, why? I mean, I have answers for myself in terms of why steel pan is so important to me, but like why, why for you did it, was it the thing that stuck after 13 years? A, a couple things. First, it's just a beautiful instrument. It's just it's it's just gorgeous. I mean, even all these years later. I mean, I know you've been playing pan for longer than I have, Josh. But um, you know, you know, however many what's two thousand four? Is that sixteen years? Seventeen years? Seven, I don't. I can't let's say seven. Track. Let's say seventeen. Good God. Okay. Yeah. So after sixteen, seventeen years of playing this instrument, um, I still there's something. Known. It still gets me every time I hear it. So that's the thing. And this, I think, is, has to do with the communal aspect of Pan and how it's just a communal instrument. And beyond the notes and the technique and practicing and, 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 and everything, there's that whole communal scene with the Pan and that's true in Trinidad, you know, with the pan yards or just with, you know, the pan community in Southern California people who I've met or in the Midwest for that matter, because I went to NIU. And so I have connections and roots in the Midwest as well now. Um, but I think the communal aspect is the other thing that keeps me involved. Like, I just love so much about the instrument. It's one of those, I mean, I've, I've, now that I've, I mean, I've gone through college program. I mean, I'm, you know, the the thing that's always interesting to me when I talk to students, you know, students of mine or, or student like yourself, um, is that oftentimes people forget that like I was a student too. And I went through a, you know, so did so percussion. Like we were all like in, in a practice room doing something and trying to figure out our way through things. Um, in my, when I was in school, it was like all that stuff fell under the umbrella of like world music and then there was orchestral music. And the contemporary scene at that time, I mean, I was in school in 19, 1998 is when I went to college. And John Cage was sort of like, on the collegiate scene was like, you knew about him if you went to University of Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati Conservatory, say with Al Adi. Like there was, there was like five people in the country that like were really pushing it. And, and that has now grown into like contemporary music within the educational system is now an entity that if you wanted to go and study and really, or even chamber music is a thing now that 
you can focus on. That wasn't the case when I was in school. And steel, but in the world musics, for some reason, steel bands just there's something I don't know how to say it, but there was a, there there's sort of an inherent cultural energy that for some reason within the steel bands is sort of just like humming in a way that I never experienced necessarily with like uh, like a like an A-way drumming group. Like we had that at, at the University of Akron and, I, and we studied with Bernard Woma. Like I was at the horse's mouth with, with that stuff and it was awesome and I would not trade it for the world. But it was harder for me to plug in. I didn't know where to plug into that culturally in some weird way. Like I, I just, it was, I didn't have a natural in. And with steel bands, there was some, there was a, and the more I study it, the more I'm a believer that it, I think the origin story of the steel pan ensemble in Trinidad, I think it's baked into that. Like the steel band would not have, the steel drum would not have been invented. The steel pan would not have been been invented if the community was insular and cut off and nobody was sharing and helping each other out. Like it, it was always a very much an inclusive thing. And so I think now hundred years later, it's radiated out and, we have to be better as teachers and students to incorporate more culture into our teaching. But I'm just sort of like, I, I'm agreeing with you and I, I'm trying to figure out why steel pan in particular is something that when a student or an, or, 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 or a school starts one, it kind of works on its own in a way that other ensembles don't work. Like, and I, there's no despair. I'm trying not to disparage like Afro-Cuban ensembles or anything like that. Cause I don't know a lot about it, but in my experience with the steel band, it catches fire pretty quick, I guess is what I'm saying. I would completely. And, you know, you and I, we have such a similar background as Mm -hmm. far as our undergrad and uh, experience. And I'm sure graduate to an extent as well. But yeah, at Long Beach, you know, Pan fell under, you know, like the world music umbrella for percussion, the world percussion. And and we were enrolled in Steel Drum Orchestra Group and then the world percussion group, which for each semester, like the first quarter was um, a music and dancing and singing and drumming. And in the second half was um, samba drumming, uh, you know, Rio style from Salvador yeah. and everything. Um, and, and I, you know, learned Afro-Cuban in lessons with, so we never really had like, like a Roomba ensemble. I never really got to experience that until I went to grad school. And then I also went to um, uh, Cuban folk, uh, folkloric music, um, uh, dance workshop in state. It was 10 years ago, actually now. Mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's something a little bit more, I don't want to say translatable, but like I'll put that in quotes a little bit more translate to, I feel like the general populace more, you know, more than just percussionists who are going to university to study or who already play drums and just want to add another instrument to their arsenal. There's something about pan that grabs people in. And I noticed this with my program that I direct at my high school where I teach. Mm. Um, And just something draws in people, some students, something draws in the audience. I don't, again, I don't know if it has to do with the tone or the communal aspect. I just, I just don't quite get it, but I I'm I'm agreeing with you agreeing with me. I think (laughs) 
<laughs> that's a good feeling to agree with somebody who agrees with you. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that's been on my – and I'm, I'm sorry. We're sort of diverging now off of what you uh, – we'll get back to what you think you did poorly over the last 13 years in a second. I want to, we'll, Which – that's a whole can of worms, but okay. <laughs> but, listen, I have a barrel of worms of stuff. I've, I've, I'm now 23 years uh, removed from stuff, so um, you're in good company. But I, I'm curious. Like what do you feel is your – one of the things for me, the older I get in the steel pan community, and I'm very grateful I teach at NYU, and which is, which I'm is a privileged situation for me in many respects. But the thing that's privileged about it that's different than NIU. Well, and I use a bad example because it's like a huge Caribbean studio, like they're they're recruiting directly from. So maybe that's about it. But the University of Akron, my my alum, like huge steel pan culture there. But my exposure to Trinidadian artists and I'm grateful for it was directly through that program, but it was once a year. And so, you know, I'd see Michael Spire would come through and, you know, there'd be a lot of different guest artists, but it was like, I met a Trinidadian once at NYU. The second largest Trinidadian population in the world is a five minute subway ride away. And so as time has gone on, I have felt a larger, and this is, this, this was, I will say that this was pre George Floyd and the social, the social move behind, that murder uh, in the last year. But prior to that, I started to have this like growing unease with not like I'm a white guy teaching pan because that, that, that sort of argument was never presented to me by a Trinidadian. So like when I was hearing it from people who were not Trinidadian, I was just like, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Like, like this is not, you're barking up the wrong tree here. But I felt a growing responsibility uh, to force exposure on my students to a thing that I never had an opportunity to have on a regular basis at Akron. And so what that's meant is like, I've had to work a little harder to inject actual Trinidadian culture, Caribbean culture into the NYU program because of the proximity, like for you where you're at and as you're growing as a player, where are you finding, if you are, I don't want to assume that you are either. Um, and that I don't mean that as a good or a bad thing, but like, what are you feeling are your sort of ethical um, uh, responsibilities with the instrument and in terms of how you present it to an audience or to colleagues or to other people of Caribbean descent, like what is your responsibility? How do you, how do you uh, reconcile that in your head? And what are you, what do you do to sort of actively push that ball forward another inch or two? It's a loaded question. Uh, and it's a, it's a, there's a lot to it. I, um, I, when I, like you and I do gigs, in fact, I, I'm doing my first pan gig today. First one since before we shut down. So yeah, like, girl, go I'm, do it. I, I've actually, I know, right. I've actually been thinking about these kinds of things. Like as things start to return more to normal, mm-hmm. these come back to mind. Um, when I, when I play, um, I always try when the tuning presents itself to tell people the instrument is from Trinidad. I don't go out and preach. I don't like have a sign up and like stand on the street corner. Like the pants from Trinidad, not Jamaica. <laughs> you know. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially on gigs where like, if you're going to play for a party, you're not there to be a teacher. You're not there to preach. Like that's not your job, but people come up and talk to me yeah. and, Often, you know, oftentimes they'll ask, well, where's the instrument from? Or is that amplified, electric? Like, how is it made? And there's a little opportunity to impart some knowledge that also can help 
dispel any stereotypes, preconceived notions or myths or whatever misunderstandings some people may have through their own, just because in American culture, we don't always, most mostly don't identify Pan as being from Trinidad. And then as a teacher, um, first off, I feel, I, I always say to my students, when you leave this program, whether you stay in it for one year or four years, you can forget all the musical information I tell you, like if you forget what a quarter note is, like whatever, but you better not forget where the pan comes from. You better that it's from Trinidad and you better remember the story of the origins of the struggle, the pioneers, everything. And if, if you remember that, but like maybe you forget some eighth notes or whatever, I will have done my job right. Mm. You know, Mm. now having said that, you know, within, you know, a high school context with classes and everything, it's, it's hard to teach as much about the culture and the, the players and the pioneers as much as I would like. Mm -hmm. And I always like, I'm trying to figure out ways to do more of it. Um, and in fact, you know, one of my classes, this doctor played piano, um, Liam's tune. Um, and of course, you know, the second star version has, you know, lyrics all about the pioneers and the struggle and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I picked that tune so I could have a better opportunity to teach about, more about the background, more about the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it didn't quite play out as much as I hoped because with, in the midst of the insane COVID teaching year with hybrid teaching and technology, it's like sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just trying to teach you guys notes. Like, yeah, oh my God, I'm with you. You know, I mean, so yeah. I, I had these lofty goals in my head. Is this, and this is my, the ultimate like best teaching tool to impart students. And it didn't play out that way. It's one of the, I mean, it's, uh, I'm going to say something that is going to sound insensitive, but I, I think I stand by it. Like it was the, it's, it's, when the lofty ideals of what a society wants meet the reality of what society has. And yeah, like I, there were so many people being like, teachers need to be doing this. And why are we, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like all of these new things were happening at a time when I was like, how do I share my screen? You know? And like, I am sharing, like I accidentally shared a, like a chat thread once that I was just troll. Do you know Murray Mast at all? Who, wait, who? Murray Mast. Uh, I know the name. Murray's a good friend of mine. He's a pan player. Um, yeah. I li- lived with him in Akron and he's a great guy and, and we gigged a lot. And I was on a, I was on a zoom call, but I was chatting with Murray on the, and I was just trolling him and just calling him fat, like just dumb friend stuff, you know, like fat shaming and we he fat shaming. Just like, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. Shoot the shit. And, and I went to share something and shared the chat thread. And oh, like no. in front of like my NYU students and I realized it and like shut it down before anybody noticed. And so, yeah, it's like at that moment, like, yes, I want to be teaching culture, but I don't, I can't get my sound to come through on zoom. And so like it just this agonizing year of trying to put all this stuff in the same box was incredibly, incredibly difficult. But I will say for me, the, the, the injection of history in culture has been something that was good because I, I was online the whole year at NYU. We were, I mean, we were remote up until the end of March. And so for the end of 2020 into this 2021, we were all online. So we, Kendall and I did a lot of like watching, you know, Pan Am North stars and talking about Tony, Tony Williams and, 
we read a book uh, by Kim Johnson called From Tim Pan to Taspo. And like, it, it was really great. And now moving back into person, there's like a part of me that in the fall wants to be like, well, while we're setting up the band, normally I'd, I'm just like doing stuff, checking it. Like, why don't I pick a panorama and just have it playing on the big screen TV that's now in the studio and wasn't there the year before, you know? And let's just play the panorama. It's eight minutes of the rehearsal. We can play it while we're setting up. Talk a little bit about who Pelham Goddard is or whatever. And then you know, next week we'll do Pan Earthquake. And then the week after that we'll do Fire Down Below. And the week after that we'll do a 2020 panorama by Devon Stewart. And just like, just start. <laughs> you know, for sometimes the stuff I've learned has just been like, what's that painting? Like, and because somebody put the painting on the wall, I'm like, oh, cool. You know, Saul Lewitt. You know, and, and so if I can just put a painting on the wall that, if three of my students over the course of the next 20 years actually get something from it and learn about Pelham Goddard or, you know, Ray Holman. Okay. That I can deal with because the other reality is like when I'm in the room, yeah, they can't play eighth notes together. <laughs> I could talk about the slave trade to the whole, the whole year, which is terribly important, but I, they can't yes. play together. So I have to, I have to deal with that too. And so how to juggle that is it's a challenge. For sure. I completely agree with all you've said and I did all the things you did although I never accidentally shared a chat with my like with someone um, although I do remember one one time because um, I in addition to teaching the steel band um, at my high school um, Santa Margarita Catholic High School I also teach AP music theory mm-hmm. um, which difficulty of trying to teach steel band virtual and hybrid all the things music theory was actually kind of my one saving grace, mm. like when, when, when stuff got so difficult and so hard and I was like, I don't, I'm in over my head and I don't know how I'm going to do this, but at least I can teach music theory. Like that can, we can do online. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so I was playing, uh, queen of the night aria, uh, Mozart aria, just, I was doing something with like, you know, melismatic textures and things like that. Um, and we were analyzing the piece and I had meant to stop my video and um, we were talking about it, but apparently I forgot to, sh- I forgot to stop sharing the video and I forgot to pause the video. So I'm talking to my class about, oh, this letter and this dick, you know, th- these texture devices here. And apparently you gone on to like the auto, you know, the, um, play to like top 10 like most difficult arias for sopranos or something and like my kids at home were like yeah okay yeah i there's a i i think this last year was charming but i'm fine if i never have to teach another zoom class like i there there was a part of me at the beginning that was like oh this could be useful and i feel like this is a tool i want to get good at and after a year i'm like nah it was like i had a sl- somebody gave me a sledgehammer at the beginning of the year and was just like no oh, you'll get better at swinging this and now a year later i'm like i don't yeah i'm better at it but i don't it's still a sledgehammer <laughs> like i have no use i have no use for like swinging the sledgehammer in anything. Yeah, I don't want to have to keep it. Like now, I got to take it and put it in my car when I go somewhere, and then I've got to like, <laughs> like, no, 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 I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. You all can swing the sledge- sledgehammers. I'm going to go back to my scalpel, and you know it's going to be great. Yeah, it's like the people in CrossFit who do like these huge t- monster truck tire flips. It's like that's cool, but like, when are you going to use that? Like, Listen, what's the point? Don't come crying to me when you're trapped under a tractor tire, Amanda. Duncan. Exactly. I oh, but for the record, 
do that. I never have done CrossFit. I don't do any of that stuff. I used to do strongman training, and we flipped, oh, really? we, we flipped a few tires in my day. Uh, <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a useless skill. Don't – I mean, you're not – I was going to say, I'm also uh, quite tiny, so maybe I'm not even much stronger than I am. I'm not sure if I could ever do it, so I don't think I'm missing out on my... Don't underestimate. The tire is probably bigger than me. Don't underestimate underestimate yourself, Amanda. Well, let me, let me now ask you the second part of the first question, which was, um, what for you is something that you feel like you dropped the ball on in the last 13 years? Or maybe, not maybe dropped the ball, but just misdiagnosed about you know your approach or something. Uh, about my, my approach with pan or uh, just in general, like the way, like what are some worldviews of yours that have been sort of nuanced over time that, um, that you've sort of identified? I think the internal dialogue in my mind of being a player, like a performer versus teacher. Mm. And I've now begun I have since begun to reconcile that and I've come to the understanding about myself that no I am both I am a performer dash teacher and mm-hmm. can't do one without the other mm-hmm. I have a passion for both and I say that because there was I think about five year period from when I first got my, um this my full-time at my high school where I teach this was in 2014 was when, was when I first started teaching there. So about a five period where I was like, do I want to stay in this teaching gig for the long term? Because up until then, I was like the whole freelance thing where like you teach some drum lines, you, get, you, you do some private teaching hustle, you try to make in some sessions, like you try to do in like an L.A. musician mm-hmm. on the scene here. And it's funny because I actually that my first day that I started, um, I had gotten a call to go play on Dancing with the Stars, like go play Pan, mm. and I had to turn it down because I was like I can't I can't miss my first day of teaching. Mm. So, so anyways, I, I it was a period of I think 2018 2019 I really was struggling with who am I. Uh, am do I want to like, cause I, I think in my head, I was afraid if I completely commit mentally to like, I am a high school teacher. That means I have to give up on playing, which is not true. And I know that's not true. I knew it wasn't true. I've always known that that is not true, but that's a stereotype of high school band directors, mm-hmm. you know? And I've seen a lot of people I know stop gigging and stop because of the time demands of the teaching job, which is nothing wrong with that. It's completely okay. I'm not, I'm not dissing that. Me, I always in my head was like, okay, say to yourself, you're a performer first, teacher second, even if the actual week didn't reflect that. So long story short, I, I, I realized after, you know, talking with some friends and I, I therapist who I see, I've seen him for since about that time when I was really at my low point, um, to that, who they've all helped me to realize, no, there's no, there's no comp. There's no reason why I have to pick one or the other. And there's no reason why teaching makes me less of a performer and why per- at all, you know, and makes me a better teacher, you know? Um, and I think because I see people who can go do recording stuff, 
Okay. And like, I can't do that because I teach full time. I have a day job of teaching, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that was more of what it was. I was myself to a lot of my, my peers who I've seen in the LA scene um, and everything. So back 13 years ago in my head, it's like, I'm maybe if I do teach, it'll be like private teaching, but like the bulk of what I do will be performing because I, and I was, uh, I was young and less experienced. And so I was wrong. Not, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just, I, I've grown up, you know, we have all grown up a lot and 13 years is a long time between your undergrad and to your mid thirties. Like you change a lot as a person. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. So. I mean, one of the things you're, I talked with, um, another former SOCI student, Owen Davis. Um, I don't know. Do you know Owen, Nathan Owen I, Davis? I don't think so. He's percussionist in Arizona. Um, really great guy. We were, we were chatting and he was talking about similar thing, the sort of like building up of a narrative in your head as a way of like trying to make sense of the world ahead of you and how those narratives change over time. Um, it's important to identify, but that's why I asked the question because one of the things I see a lot now, and maybe it's just because I see it online. And I, when I was a student, there was no like Facebook wasn't the thing it was, it is now. It's not like we went online and, you know, we went online to show pictures of our coffee. Like that's as like deep as it went. And it morphed into this thing now where like you start to call people out on their careers and you're sort of saying things you like and you don't like, and you're pointing specific people out and being like, they're not doing it right. It's like it turned into this other thing. Um, The whole time though, I'm like watching it and I'm I'm just like, I think you're construct like you're, 20 years old and you're I don't think you know what you're talking about but in your head this is what the narrative is right and I you know the narrative that was told to me when I was in college was like you could go teach at a college or you could uh teach at a high school or you could play in an orchestra same and teaching at a college playing in the orchestra was the primary thing that or like getting a gig performing was the most respected teaching at a college was the next thing and then teaching in a band was sort of like what you did if you didn't get the other two you know um, exactly and that narrative it didn't come from a specific person it was just sort of in the air you know like it's not like larry snyder sat me down and was like you know if you don't do that like that's not at all what i was taught but it was just in the air so i had a similar thing like there's just like if i didn't if i wasn't a steel drum studio musician like tom miller then i'm not doing it right because tom was a ua grad and i was like well that's what that's what you do. You know, if I wasn't playing in an orchestra like Tim Adams or Cynthia, yay, then, well then, and I was like, I can't do that. So I'm kind of going to can't worry about that. And then the other thing was like teaching at a college, I don't want to get my doctorate. So I'm kind of screwed there. <laughs> like, like I, I just sort of like it, it, I didn't have anything and other than steel drum gigging. And that's when I got into Yale and luckily the chamber music thing, like the door was just open wide enough. I got into Yale and then I met. So, and now I'm doing the thing I'm doing. But I think my point is, had I subscribed to my early narrative early on and then just been like, well, this is the way it is. And it's somebody else's fault. And this is, this is shitty. Like Amanda, you and I would not be talking right now. And I would probably be in a gutter, like, you know, eating trash. And so anyway, I, there's no point to my story here other than to say, like, I, I just wish students would be a little bit more careful about their worldview narratives as sort of like this set in stone thing is like, 
what I thought four hours ago is not what I think now, you know, <laughs> and it was, it's really tricky. What I thought yesterday was not true anymore. I mean, let's be real. And it, right. I mean, that, that narrative, which I feel like, and this is coming from someone who is not in the university pedagogy setting. Like I don't teach full time at a university. I, I'm, I'm studio faculty at a community college here. Mm-hmm. Um, but my world, my daily interactions is, is with high school. gigging but not pedagogy and I remember when I when I was first auditioning for colleges a million years I wanted to be the principal percussionist of the LA Phil or like New York Phil like I was like that's what I want to do and also like continue to like play drums and everything and do but like that was the dream um and teaching was never on the radar I was like I don't want to be a band director like I I remember saying to my parents like that was the last thing I wanted to be was a high school band director Mm -hmm. Well, look what happened. But, but, but also, you know, as you do in college and, you, in, in, as a percussion major and you get exposed to so many different styles of music, um, you starts to expand and broaden a bit. And I remember one, you know, when I just did, I did not want to go the orchestral route seriously. Um, it wasn't so much that I discovered what I wanted to do, but I was learning what I didn't want to do. And I had also begun teaching privately a little bit here and there. And Dr. Carney, uh, again, he was the one who mm. just did, hey, maybe like try teaching, you know? And I did. And the more I started to teach, the more I discovered I enjoyed it. Like this student did something I told them to do and they did better. It's amazing. That's cool. Right? It's That's so, it's cool. Such a, it's such a good feeling. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It was like, that's why I was like, maybe I'm okay at this. And then I remember, so long story short, I, I, I remember the day when I was in a lesson with Dr. Carney and it was, um, I think it was my beginning of my fifth year. By the way, I spent. I was Wait, say that one more time. Sorry, you cut out. I, I spent six years on my undergrad degree. It well, wasn't I, a double major. I didn't take this- off time. I just took. <laughs> Well, you're in good company. I, Owen, Owen was five and a half years. I was almost six years with my student teaching. So you're in good company. You're fine. Yeah. So I remember, um, I remember Dr. Carney sat me down and uh, I was talking to him about grad school because I was on the fence of what, whether I wanted to go or not. And he, frankly, he just sat me down and was like, I need to go to NIU for your master's degree and then you need to go to USC and go get your DMA and then go teach at a university go become a professor hmm. and that that moment I remember I remembered it so clearly ever since I, I remember thinking okay alright that's what I'm going to do and it was never a thing where like I felt like he was pressuring me to do it hmm. it, it never was like well I don't want to but I'm going to do it because my teacher said so no I wanted to do it it's just he saw there was a teacher in me before I did Hmm. now. And so, and I, and I went to NIU of course, and had an amazing time. Um, but I, it was when I was at NIU decided, I don't think I want a university professor just because, you know, as a teaching assistant, um, you learn kind of the, what goes on in the background a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, behind the scenes. And I just, it just didn't really feel like the right fit for me. Um, 
And I mean, but I, it was an amazing program. I'm not dash, I'm not bashing the program yeah. at all. I mean, and I Robert Chapel and there were plastic teachers, as was Liam and Cliff, and I, I worked with Mia, and I met Yuko. I met so many people there. But I thought, well, I don't think I want to be a university professor either. I love teaching, so maybe I'll just stop at my master's and I'll finish and I'll go back home to California and just kind of see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, sometimes I I went through a period where I thought, well, maybe I'll go into ethnomusicology. And then I've realized, nah, it's a lot of writing. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have, if I want to do that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. I guess kind of another long tangent Going back to how there are these prescribed pathways, at least at the time when I were, you know, like the two thousands, but like the first half of the two thousands, especially like the three prescribed paths, orchestral percussionist, you know, professor, band director. And it's like, Anything else outside of that norm, you kind of are on your own. You got to forge your own path. Mm -hmm. Or you're wasting your degree. Like if you were just going to be a gigging musician, then like, why did you spend that money? You know, like there was that sort of implied. Right. Thing. And now, of course, you know, being in gigging in the, you know, quote, the real world as if college is in the real world, but I digress. Um, And you work with people who not only do, go to prestigious conservatories or like the big name schools or whatever, but they didn't even go to music school. Like they Mm -hmm. just learned in the trenches um, of, you know, for lack of a better terms, you know, the music school of hard knocks who are some of the top call players in the LA scene or whatever Mm -hmm. scene that you're in. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really is just like, it's got their own path and, you know, I've had some students over the years um, who I've only had maybe at the most five students in all the years that I've taught who've got music majors. And I've always sat them down and had a real hard talk with them and be like, do you understand what you're getting yourself into? Hmm. And then that, I've had students who have continued their musical experiences and growth and uh, their passions music majors and I tell them you don't need to in fact don't be a music major unless you have a really good reason why you mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. and not bashing music majors but it's just into the pat the the pat the back to the fact of it's just a piece of paper you need a piece of paper to continue to play music mm-hmm. at a high level yeah well what can I ask you like um you talk about having the hard talk with your students. Like what are some other things that, and I'm going to ask a clumsy question. So forgive me, but like um, one of the conversations that's been in the air a lot, uh, you know, for five years now around the me too stuff is the way the experience of women in, in different fields. And I am not a woman as you can clearly see. Um, but like, and so I'm ignorant to, I, I have been for, sorry, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm ignorant to a lot of the issues because I, I, I think I'm identifying that I've been fortunate to have been, I was taught by a very strong woman starting in fifth grade named Joan Wenzel, um, who started me on the steel band path. And so like I had examples early on of like just badass ladies in my life who she could still play circles around me, you know? 
going to grad school and some of my teachers there and my, my hearing teacher at Yale, Joan Panetti was, is like one of my heroes and changed my life. Um, Ayano Katoka, who's a badass percussionist. I was in school with her and Gwen Berge- now Gwen, Gwen Dees. And, and so like when I hear people say like, people say this about women drummers. I'm like, what kind of dumb ass would ever think? Like, they don't know Ayano clearly. Like, it, it's totally crazy to me that anybody would think that, but I'm trying to acknowledge, like, the particular path I've been on. I feel like I've it's never even been a possibility to talk about that stuff because I've just been around bad motherfuckers my whole life, you know? And and so, like, I'm, I'm sure I've missed stuff that Ayano and Gwen had to deal with that I didn't. But I'm kind of curious, like, is what part of your conversations with students or even yourself and like how you view this stuff in terms of gender and, and the way to navigate the field? Like what are some of the, where's your head at been with that stuff recently? If, it, if you've been dealing, you know, thinking about it in any particular way, you know, you can tell me, but um, I'm just kind of curious to hear your, your side of that. Yeah. You know, I am very lucky in that all of the men who have taught me have been, Nothing. They were nothing but supportive, mm-hmm. and uh, nurturing, and just incredible of not just musicians but exemplary people. As well. um, I've actually never had a woman percussion teacher who was like a full full time percussion teacher ever. I never have. All of my okay. my main percussion teachers have been men. Um, it's not to say I've not studied some things with some women. In fact, um, I remember you were talking about, we were talking about music before, um, the Ledecbo family, mm-hmm. the program at CalArts years ago. And Dr. Carney had studied with Kobla Ledecbo. Um, but one of my teachers when we did um, away music was Yako Ledecbo Cole, who she is a beast mm-hmm. of a just everything i mean she was officially like the dance coach you know teacher for us in the music but i mean she could of course she could sing everything she could drum everything was a beast i remember one time let a rehearsal all by herself and i think it was her daughter who was a newborn at the time it was years ago she had her strapped on her back and she just went around doing all the she's beast well she's like, like i carried this sh- i carried this kid in my belly for nine months and did this so like putting me in a backpack is actually objectively easier so i'm just yeah. gonna do that. <laughs> i know um yeah so so yucca was a big big influence um and just seeing like a very frankly a really strong woman yeah yeah and like taking names um and i've mostly had a pretty good experience being a, a woman in very male dominated field. Although over the years it's, it's becomes less so every day. Mm. Um, but I remember when I was, um, I actually, I went to two high schools and my first, um, I remember I was the only girl my freshman year when I was in drumline and did they make you play all the bell parts? Actually? No. Well, I was in drum. They, they may be in drumline, which was, which was great. Uh, a lot of the stuff that came out with you, uh, year, you know, all the years ago, um, I experienced a lot of that stuff when I was a freshman, when I was a 14-year-old girl. Like, hearing guys shoot discussions, which I'm not going to, I don't want to say on the podcast, but 
they did that in front of me. Mm-hmm. And this little naive 14-year-old girl who doesn't know anything, mm-hmm. I'm the only one there. And I knew something was wrong. They were talking to me, about me, in front of me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to deal with it. And, you know, and my, of course, you know, my, my parents were amazing. My mom went to bat for me as a mom, you know, most moms I'm sure would. Yeah. Um, but my second high school was better. And then in, in college, again, but support from all of my teachers and also all of my, my just the other guys in the studio, you know, at Long Beach, they were, you know, like, we're like a family. They're like my brothers. It was pretty, you know? pretty, well, at the, at the University of Akron, there were, I think when I was there, there were three or four women in the studio. And, I, you know, when, when, when the, the Me Too th- sort of uh, era, well, I want to say era, like, this has been an issue for a long time. But when that sort of hit the skids, I was like, oh my God, like, I was like thinking back to like my friends Lisa and and and, um, and Daphne and like what did I? And I think back and like no, it was pretty equal opportunity. Like it was like like she gave it right back to me. Like I, I feel okay. I think if I I want to text Daphne and ask her, but I I think I'm but that not not to say like in that there's a line and like there's a difference between family and like exclusion from a conversation, you know, and and it can yeah, get, it's a fine line. Exactly. Yes. And, and it's funny you say that, like, right back. Of course, like, you know, I, I've heard, I, I've heard the way guys talk. And like, when I'm in that environment, I feel like if I needed to, you know, I can throw it back at them. And it also helped that I have a brother. So, and, you know, so I, I've, <laughs> you know I've always, I, but and I've all, I all, when I, I think I tended to connect, get on better with guys than girls. For whatever reason, it's not that I didn't have any friends who were girls. Um, I did, but I think it was the tomboy in me because I was a really, really big tomboy for mm. my whole childhood. So I just was always around guys more. Um, so, but you're right. I mean, and the at the end of the day, like I, I, I feel like at, at NIU as well. Um, you know, if any of us women in the percussion studio were harassed in any way the other guys in the studio would would come to bat for us and would be like right. they would they would step in and, and put down the guy who was said they would be there for us they'd be very protective mm-hmm. um again not that we can't hold our own weight and like we can protect ourselves but it's like they were just like you don't mess with them like they they are one of us like yeah. They are part yeah. of our family. You do not mess with family. Yeah, and it becomes, you know, I think I, I'm guilty of going too far the other direction. Where like when we were in, <laughs> when we were in Trinidad last year before the COVID lockdown, Shelby Blesinger McKay went with. Do you know Shelby? She's a great lead pimp. Do you know her? I, I've heard the name. I don't think I've ever met her, but I, I she's name. awesome. She's awesome. Before. And and um, but I've been to Trinidad enough, and I've had Cliff in my ear about how women are sometimes treated in Trinidad, and he's like very protective of any woman that he knows that goes to Trinidad, like a student of his, a friend of his. He's always like, "Be careful," you know. And when we went down, there was a, you know, I'm very protective of of my friends in general. But we go to Trinidad, I was just like, "All right, I got to watch out for Shelby." And 
there was a point where like the four of us were like a protective male cocoon around her the whole time, and they, and it was like she didn't get she wasn't in our face about it, but there was a point where she just disappeared, and I was like, oh yeah, she's avoiding the male cocoon. Like we're over being overprotective and over like <laughs> caring about Shelby, where you know we 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 let the male bubble disappeared for a while, and she was t- she she hooked up with some other lady friends in the steel band and she was she was in a female cocoon at that point and it was totally fine it was just the male cocoon of the us four dum-dums and so like like we were going to be able to help her in any real like physical altercation anyway like we all crumble in a heartbeat but uh but yeah you can go you can go the other way way too hard on that front too true yeah yeah i mean having said all that um you know have i experienced misogyny oh of course it's bad um, and actually I find it, um, it doesn't happen when I'm other percussionist. It's a, it's, it, when it does happen, it is when I'm around other instrumentalists, mm, mm. like on gigs, you know, and it's always, again, like where it's like, you have to prep twice as hard to be taken half as seriously men. Um, if, it, you know, if we make one mistake, Oh, well, she just can't play. Oh, mm-hmm. she doesn't really know. She's just, she's not really serious, you know? Yeah. So, of course that happens, but I feel lucky enough in that I've not had a major um, I don't, confrontation is the right word, but or episode. Yeah. But thus far, I've been very privileged and very lucky to have avoided any huge like life changing abuse of any kind, mm-hmm. mental, physical, anything, you know, emotional yeah, yeah. within the percussion world. Yeah. I, and it's, again, like I asked the question just to sort of, I'm, I'm curious how we, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we've reached the goal when there's enough, when there's a group of, there's enough women in a percussion studio where you all are chatting like women chat and it freaks the guys out. Like, listen, I, I haven't hung with you, but I'm, I'm married to a woman who's friends with a lot of women. I know Shelby. She's a woman. She's also friends with other women. I've spent time as the only man around a lot of women. When you all get rolling, boy, look out. And like, you know, it's a different, it's a different vibe than, than a group of a cohort of men saying stuff. But like, I feel like the goal is if you can get somebody, some male in a studio somewhere to be like, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. Like, then I feel like we're at the true diversity. We've, we've made it. We equal it out. There we equal it out. There you go. That's what we need. That's what we need. Yeah. We've come along in my lifetime. I, it's hard. One of the things I feel like we as humans don't do very well is acknowledge progress. Like we have negativity bias. We just see nothing but the problems and the true, the objectifiably, the objectifiably, provable data is that you walk into a percussion studio now in Dover, Ohio, where I grew up, the demographics are going to be different. More, totally. first of all, I, more, more percussionists can read music. I couldn't read pitches till my senior year in high school. That's not, I'm not blaming my teacher on that. It was just, that's the, that's was in the air. I was Mr. Holland's opus. Boom, 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 boom. And somebody's hit me on the football helmet. You know, that was me. And here I am teaching at Princeton and NYU. Like, so that's just to say that the de- the generation coming behind me is now much more armed for stuff. And I'll bet if you went, you would see more more boys playing the glockenspiel. The flute player in my marching band, there was two girls in my percussion st- section. 
both of them played cymbals. We didn't even let them play the glockenspiel. We had the flute player come up and play the glock parts. Because the flute player was the only one who could read. And then if it was a trumpet part on the glock, we had to have the trumpet player come because they could only be the only persons to read the transposing B-flat stuff. You know, like, as a man at 18 years old, I was like, transposing? You're crazy. Like, like what? what's that? <laughs> you know, but now, that was 1997, 98. Now it's 2021. Things are things are objectively different. Um, so I just totally. wanted I wanted to put a pin in there that that like it moves slower than I want it to, but it's definitely better to be a percussionist now than it was in 1998. I think <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah. And I even think about my own students now, like being a teacher. You know, it is not lost on me that my program again it's majority guys, mm-hmm. and I am a woman leading. So the only experience they've had it's like you with Joan. Mm-hmm experience that a lot my guys have had is having a woman as their teacher like that's just normal and I have a lot of uh female students um and that is two things about that it's normal that I never I almost never give it a second oh well of course I have a lot of female students in my program Mm -hmm. but also like I I am mindful that they are their they their example their teacher the person that they're watching is a woman just like that or who I, it was in their shoes you know mm-hmm. i you know there's always a little part of me that even though like you know I, I don't let stuff fly in my classroom like if there was any funny business i stop it and they're really in effort, but but I, I do wa- I watch out for my female students mm-hmm. because because of my experience when I was I was fourteen and like you know all the guys in drumline talking about the things they wanted to girls the things that they, they had what? crushes on they wanted things that they wanted to do to girls the way that teenage boys oh, yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, girls yeah. that they like like graphic yeah. In my day, we used to just say we hated that girl, and that meant we loved that girl. Like that's that's all it was. <laughs> See, that's that's normally that how it is, right? I know. Yeah, she's ugly. No, she's like, not. She's super attractive. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but you can't. But your friends, your friends know that. Yeah, yeah. But you got to say yeah. the thing. You got to do the thing. You got to jump through the hoops as a, as a, as a young man. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> At least in 1998, uh, that was the vibe. I, I'm sure now things, things are different now, but. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So meaning, anyways, yeah, I just, I, I, sometimes I think about these things and I'm just happy that female students get to have the teacher that I never got to have, mm. you know, well, because I, I tried, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that uh, the other thing too, is that I think you pointing out like the th- me having Joan Wenzel as a teacher in fifth grade then made it exponentially easier to have a female English teacher and then to have a female science teacher and then to have it like, like I, I'm reading all these, these things now about like the lack of women. And I, I, I like read uh, like astrophysics books and stuff on the side. Like I love quantum entanglement. I don't, I, I don't understand it, but I love that's it. so cool by the way. Yeah. Like <laughs> that stuff that fascinates me, but like I bought it. There's one book I found of a female physicist and it's like, yeah, there's just not a lot in that field. But, you know, to me, that's confusing because I grew up with lots of strong female teachers. But I think if you only ever had strong male teachers until you got to your senior year in high school and then you had a physics professor, like, I wish it wasn't the case. But I think there's like, well, I've never had, like, this hasn't been that way before. 
Like you automatically put up a, like a like like a wall and. I don't always know if it's like I don't trust women. It's just like this isn't like the other things, you know. But for me, like I trust women, like because I, you know, if, if you just have it early on and you have a great experience, like then all of those kids who are studying with you now in fifth grade or at high school, when they go and they have a physics professor who's a female, and they start talking about things that Stephen Hawking has been talking about for thirty years, like Stephen Hawking is a man, but he's a disabled man who couldn't speak, yet he gets more credit than the females who can, you know, like who are who are saying the same things, you know. And yeah. so, I anyway, I'm just saying that I think I think for better or worse, you are doing the Lord's work, and that is the that is the stuff that in 15 years is going to change the demographics. I think more than just coming out and being like, "There's no women here." Like, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do something about it. And I, I just want to say, like, you, you're you doing something about it in a way that is just doing the work. And I, 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 I just want to put a pin in that because I think it's important. And I think you're, un- I don't, I don't think you're underestimating it, but don't underestimate. Check in with those male kids 15 years from now. And I would put my life savings on it that their worldviews are going to be more nuanced because they talked about eighth notes with you in in eighth grade and And, and because and because you didn't present it to them as a hi i'm giving you the female viewpoint here like joan wenzel never said that to me she just was she just played me under the table every goddamn time i walked in there you know and i was like well fuck i can't this is another human being that i can't play better than and so like that's all it was you know it wasn't a male female thing it was just like shit (laughs) i mean i i never i don't think i've ever once talked about the fact that i'm a woman teacher Mm -hmm. like I just teach and I just play, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, I, I happen to be female. And of course in my head, that makes no difference. So therefore I, it's not, you know, I don't talk about it. Like I don't bring it up. It's not like a point of like, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to female viewpoint on this. Like it just, of course you're going to get that big woman, but it's not because I'm saying that like I'm announcing it to the world. Well, I I, I want to sort of couch all of this or just clarify or uh, qualify a little bit that like there there are absolute if for the people out there for whom their worldview includes the thought women cannot play as strong as men women can't get the sound that men can't get can get women shouldn't be in charge of this because men have better like those people get out I, I the, the there's no time I don't have time for that like. You're wrong, and that's just not what we're talking about. Any woman and any man can make any sound they want. Why? Because Ayano Katoka is three foot six, and she weighs ninety three pounds, and she can play louder than me and bigger than me on any given day. And I just was taught that at when I was twenty one. I just was like, well, that's the truth now, and like I just have to assume that's the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. And I just wish it's the same with going into a steel band. You go into a steel band in Trinidad. You see, seventy percent of the people playing bass are women. It's yes, one the, it's one of the most physically demanding parts of the steel band. Yet, it's a w- woman-dominated section, almost to a band. I would, I would, I mean, it's yes, it varies year to year, but but compared to any other section in the band, there is a shitload of women who play bass. There's panoramas yes. written about it for God's sakes, you know. Go, woman, yes, yep, yep. So anyway, just, I, I, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I remember just when I went to play with Silver Stars five years ago, I was like, okay, just full of women. Cool. 
the bass section is always my favorite section. It's where I, like if I'm drilling a band in Trinidad or in Brooklyn, I really try to make a point to go spend a lot of time and build a relationship with the bass section because they're the people on the fringes of the band physically. They are, they feel like they're the least seen and heard people in the band yet they're the most interesting people in the band. <laughs> like the person who's in the bass rack behind the engine room, that's the person I want to talk to. Like that person who's just raging back there and no one ever sees them. It's like, you've got something that I don't think I have. I don't think I can commit to playing a part that well when no one knows I'm there. <laughs> and anyway, just to say, well, Amanda, this has been really fun. And I know that we only just scratched the surface here and I've stolen an hour and 44 seconds of your life. Um, but... My door is always open, and I would love to chat with you again on another podcast. If, you, if you're if you up for it, just reach out to me. But don't hesitate to be like, hey, dum-dum, I messaged you three days ago, and you haven't responded. <laughs> okay, can, we, can you promise me? Sure, for sure. I'll call you out, Josh. Josh, no worries. <laughs> call me out privately three times. you got to call me out <laughs> privately three times, and then you can go public with it, if that's okay. Uh, uh, okay, fourth, fourth time we'll go all right. It's like when you offer to pay for dinner and somebody denies you three times. You, it, to offer a fourth time is rude. Just take it public at the at the at the fourth time, okay? Yep, we just got to call the guy out at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Amanda, where can folks, if they want to learn a little bit more about what you're doing, where can they find you online? Yeah, well, um, I am Instagram at a Duncan Percussion, um, mm-hmm. and. I technically have a Twitter. I don't really do anything with it. I just have it so I can read other people's tweets. It's the same handle if you really want to follow me. Both my accounts are private because as a high school teacher, I have social media private. Um, oh, is that right? They make you do that? Yes. Yeah, it's actually uh, oh. contractual. Like I, Well, I mean, we're, we can't have any um, interactions with students on Got social it. media. Well, because they're is, minors. That is smart. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. So just, you know, and I, I just, and it's also like, I do the same thing to like, I, I'd like to keep my life and the rest of my life separate. And that also goes online. So I am going to go um, and so block, my account, I'm going to go and block, all of my, I'm going to go and block all of my NYU students on social media right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's different. It's different in university because I don't legal, think so. The more you, legal, well, yeah, but they're legal adults. Like my students, like legally they're minors like i can't like i don't know like i don't want to be i'm gonna my, say my rule my rule is they have to be 18 and they have to be graduated but so. my my now that i'm 42 41 and i look back on myself at 21 yes you're technically legal but you're not an adult uh that's true that's a good point and i'm i'm 35 now and it's like the older you know you know the older we get the more i'm like god those are young kids at 22 God, they're babies. <laughs> so there's a great In quote. Some ways. There's a great quote by Michael Rosen. He talks about like the thing about teaching is like you get older, but they're all always eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> like yep. they're never not eighteen, and they all come in and it's the same thing every every year. He's like, "Here's how you do your snare drum roll." Oh, great! You got a girlfriend and you found your armpit hair. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, and you're going through your first big breakup. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, oh, well, Amanda, this was really lovely. I appreciate it. And uh, like I said, the door's always open. I enjoyed chatting with you. And I hope, uh, I don't know when So's coming out to California next, but if we do, I would love to chat and hang out and grab a beer and shoot the shit in person. That would be great, Josh. And I I am trying, I'm, I'm 
perpetually trying to get myself to New York and oh, I would love to go do Brooklyn Panorama yes. one of these years. It's always hard to try to find time to get out yeah. there, but I just want to go and when I'm when the day comes that I'm finally in New York, I'll hit you up. Please do and please join Whoa. please come out for Panorama. That is a good yes. time and you won't regret it. So I'm trying Trying to do it. I get it. I know it's hard. I live in Connecticut and it's hard to get to New York, so I can imagine. <laughs> so, but uh, well, listen, Amanda, yeah. stay healthy. And uh, if you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. Otherwise, I will look forward to seeing you again in the future. All right. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.